0: scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 16 verses 1 through 16. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 11. Again, today's passage is Genesis chapter 16 verses 1 through 16. Please stand with me as we honor God's holy and inerrant word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt." May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we're able to gather here to worship you, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to hear your word preached. I thank you for the honor, the privilege, and blessing it is to bring the Word of God before my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we all know that your Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides soul and spirit, and that it penetrates us in ways that nothing else can. And so we pray that your Spirit will help us to not only hear the Word, but to obey it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen we often wonder, we oftentimes think, does God see the situation I'm in? Especially when we face a challenging situation, a hard circumstance, something troublesome. I mean, for instance, we have the desire to get married, but we've experienced a long season of singleness. Every believer we've dated, it didn't work out. Does God see my dating situation? Maybe it's a situation where you want to step down as a leader of a Bible study. But it's really hard to find someone to step up. And you begin to wonder, doesn't God know that this Bible study will dissolve without a leader, without someone to lead it? Or maybe you're submitting your resume to multiple companies because you're looking for work. And every time you submit that resume, you receive the polite email that says, thank you for applying, but we don't think that you'd be a good fit. And maybe you receive no response from other companies. Does God see the bind that I'm in? I mean, you pray to God for help. There's no answer. It's silent. It's as though the line to heaven is busy. And only the small print of the word delivered appears under your text bubble. And we wonder, does God see me? Does he see my trouble? Does he pay attention to my circumstance? Is he even there? What should we do in those moments? What should we do when we believe that God averts his gaze from us? How should we respond when we feel or sense that God is unresponsive? What do we do when we think that God fails, or even possibly refuses to see our trouble, fails to see our situation? What do we do? And to answer that question, we'll turn our attention this morning to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And thank you, Lexi, for the reading this morning. And again, this summer, we're going through a series on the book of Genesis, and we decided this summer to focus on the life of Abraham. Now, let me give you a recap of Abraham's life so far. Think of this as kind of the scene before the episode starts that catches you up on the story. Now, previously in the life of Abraham, God had just helped Abram defeat several kings to rescue his cousin or his nephew, Lot. And then following this episode, God reaffirms the covenant to Abram that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars and that his descendants would inherit the land. Now, while Abram believed God, he still lacked a son, no child. And this brings us to chapter 16 of Genesis. Now, in this text, in our time together this morning, we'll answer three questions. We'll ponder three things from this particular text, And we'll think about these questions in sequence. So I'll give you a question, we'll think about it, and then I'll give you another question, and we'll think about it, and I'll give you another, and we'll think about it. Okay. So first question, what do we do when we believe that God doesn't see our troubles? What is our typical response when we fail to see God at work in our lives? What are we tempted to do? What do we decide to do when we think that God doesn't care about us? Well, belief that God doesn't see our troubles, this belief that God doesn't see us, causes us to take things into our own hands. When we think that God is too busy to help, we help ourselves. We decide to adopt the mentality, this belief, that God helps those who help themselves. If God doesn't want to do anything to help me get out of this situation or this circumstance, then I'm going to do something. Belief that God doesn't see our troubles causes us to take things into our own hands. And we see this in the text, especially when Sarai's belief that God doesn't see her affliction causes her to take things into her own hands. Sarai thinks to herself, If God doesn't do something about my problem, then I'm going to do something about it. And what is this problem? God promised Abram a child. But for 10 years, there's no child. Every month, for 120 months, they waited to see if Sarai would get pregnant. And every time they checked, nothing. Sarai and Abram had not been able to conceive a child for 10 years. Now look at the first half of verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. It's difficult, isn't it, to be a father of many nations, the father of many descendants, but not having a child? It's kind of hard. And not having a child was a dilemma. And in the ancient Near East, not being able to conceive a child would be considered shameful. For women in this time had one primary role, bear children. And Sarai believed that God didn't care. He didn't see her. And why? Because her womb remained closed, It was shut. And Sarai believed that God didn't see her affliction because he refused to open her womb. Look at verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. See? See how God doesn't care? He hasn't allowed us to have kids. But Sarai has a plan. She has a plan of her own. She decides to take the initiative. She decides to take things into her own hands because maybe God needs a little help. And so Sarai plans to give Abram, her servant Hagar, to conceive a child. Hagar will serve as a surrogate. Now, where does Sarai get this idea of using a surrogate, a substitute? Well, if a wife in the ancient Near East failed to produce a child for their husband, they could use their female servant as a surrogate. The husband would then conceive a child with the female servant, and the resultant child would be considered the child of the mistress. Now, we might look at this practice as odd, but it occurred regularly in ancient times because, again, they prioritized the importance of having children. Now, Moses introduces Hagar in the latter half of verse 1. Now, let's look at it. It says, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And then Sarai explains the plan in the latter half of verse 2. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And what is Abram's response when he hears the plan? What happens when he here, Sarai come up with this idea and how to conceive children. Does he say, No, Sarai, God promised a child. We need to wait for him. We need to trust. We need to believe in him. No. Hear the remainder of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Maybe he thought the same thing as Sarai. Well. I guess if God doesn't want us to do anything or doesn't want to do anything, then maybe we've got to try something. And they follow through with Sarai's plan. I'll look at verse 3. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now many of us can relate to Sarai. We think that God doesn't see our trouble when he doesn't follow our timeline. Sarah might have expected to have conceived a child maybe within five years, maybe seven, maybe eight after Abram received the promise of God, but she didn't expect to wait so many years, ten years? And it doesn't work according to her plan. It doesn't accord to expectations. Now, we may have the expectations, some of us, to be married by 25, and we never expected to still be single at age 30. Does God see my trouble? I mean, I didn't expect to be serving in ministry for so many years. I hope that someone would have replaced me by now. I mean, this Bible study has been going on for a long time. Does God not see my dilemma? I mean, I expected to apply for a job. Yes, I knew I would apply for months, maybe two months, three months, But I didn't expect to be submitting my resume for a year and a year and a half. Like, what is going on? Does God not want me to be employed? And as these thoughts continue to linger, as we continue to ruminate about them, think about them, we decide to take things into our own hands. We sense that we need to help God out. Maybe we can help him to move along. And we decide to take things into our own hands because we don't think God cares about us. Let me paint this picture in some more detail. Think about the person who wants to be in a relationship. Well, since all the believers I've dated, they're kind of duds, maybe I need to expand my search parameter on my dating app. You know, maybe I'll include people from other faith backgrounds. I mean, we're strong enough in our faith. You know, an unbeliever wouldn't draw us away from the Lord. No way! And maybe, as, I, as we date this non-believer, maybe they'll be more open to the gospel. Who knows? God might use us to bring this other person to faith. I mean, after all, God can do all things, right? I think about the ministry example. Okay, so if no one decides to step up in this ministry, then it's time for me to put some fire under them, maybe to motivate them. Maybe some people need some conviction. And so we decide to employ a tool, and this tool is false guilt. We decide to use false guilt to motivate people to serve. Now, you may be wondering, well, what do I mean by false guilt? Well, let me give you an example. Hey, Jim... I notice you've been faithfully attending this Bible study. And every time we have a Bible study, you always have something very significant to contribute. I think you would be a great Bible study leader. Especially if you're willing to serve now, because, you know, no one else is willing to serve at this moment. And it would be a shame if we ended this Bible study. I mean, think about the spiritual health of all these people. Think about their relationship with the Lord. I mean, think about their eternal destiny. You're their only hope. Think about it. Now, I think you get what I'm getting at, right? We we motivate people. We can put some fire under them. Take things into our own hands. And maybe think about the job example. When you fail to receive any invitations for an interview, you decide to shift strategies. You decide to... Maybe it's time to flower up my resume, to embellish it a little bit. So you've taken a single class on design software. So instead of writing able-to-use CAD software, you decide to put down expert in using computer-aided design. Maybe you apply for a job in hospitality because you took that one class, that general education class at U of H in hospitality, and you decide to say, instead of writing, took a hospitality class from UH, you decide to write, attended U of H hospitality school. Sounds different. You see a position that requires fluency in Spanish, well, you took a year of Spanish in high school, maybe instead of moderate fluency in Spanish, you can, you know, which you can only barely hold a conversation, you say, proficient fluency in Spanish. We decide to take things into our own hands when we don't think God cares for us. We feel the need to take charge because God seems to ignore us. Maybe he needs our help. So, this leads us to the second question I want us to ponder this morning What happens when we take things into our own hands? What results when we decide to help God out? What occurs when we decide to engage some questionable behavior to get what we want? Well, when we take things into our own hands, it oftentimes leads to more trouble than we expect. Our efforts lead to more complications. Our plans result in more difficulties. It could create more issues. It causes more dilemma, more drama. And helping out God oftentimes leads to misfortune. When we take things into our own hands, it often leads to more trouble than we expect. And we see this in the text. Sarai's plan causes a lot of trouble in the Abram's family. There are details within the text that indicate trouble. Let me highlight them to you. First, there are some allusions to an earlier part of Genesis. There are allusions to Genesis chapter 3, that indicate there is trouble coming for this family. Look again at verse 3 with me, and this is very important. Oh, excuse me, verse 2. It says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Remember how God cursed Adam because he listened to the voice of his wife? It has echoes of that. Now, look also at verse 3 and the verbs. It says, Abram's wife took, emphasis on took, Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and emphasis on the next verb, gave her to Abram. Took, dot, dot, dot. Gave, dot, dot, dot. Remember how Eve took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and gave to her husband, Adam, to eat? illusions. So what is Moses trying to say here? Although it was permissible in ancient Near Eastern society for a husband to take a surrogate, God was not pleased that Sarah and Abram took things into their own hands, because it resembled Adam and Eve doing what was right in their own eyes. And if you read the text... If you look at these 16 verses, you'll notice how many words are connected to the word or to the idea of sight. Look at verse 2. There's a word, behold, this idea of look. You see it also in verse 4. He went her, and she saw that she had conceived. She looked with contempt. And all these ideas of sight that are kind of littered in this text again shows that what are we going to do? Are we going to do things according to how God sees them or according to how the world sees things? Because to be a follower of God means trusting God by doing things how he sees is right. And how often do we find ourselves taking things into our own hands because we think we know what is right. We see the path. We see the plan. We see the goal. We decide to do what we think is right. Now, there's also another hint that this is trouble for Abram's family because there are allusions to Abram's time in Egypt. Remember when Abram went down to Egypt... He instructed Sarai to lie about her marriage to him so that she could potentially be an Egyptian man's wife. Well, what happens here? Sarai tells Abram to separate from her and to marry another woman, Hagar. So what goes around comes around. And again, it demonstrates a lack of faith on the part of Abram and Sarai. They decide to take things into their own hands It'll only lead to trouble. Now we see even more trouble in the text because after Hagar conceives, Hagar looks down upon Sarah after this conception. Look at verse 4. And when he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now to look with contempt means to say that you're looking down upon them, that they're beneath you. Now, we don't know if Hagar said anything, but you and I both know you don't really need to say anything to treat anyone with contempt. I mean, I imagine Hagar strutting around with her little baby bump. You say, hey. You know, I mean, it's contempt. You know, maybe there's a little nonverbal cue. Hmm, right? It's just enough to say, a little contemptuous attitude, a little contemptuous behavior. And Hagar uses every single nonverbal cue to say to Sarai, see this bump? Move over, sister. I'm the matriarch of this family. And Sarai, she won't have any of this. And Sarai demands Abram, do something. Look at verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And we see in this verse that Abram failed to protect Sarai. He failed to protect her from the contempt, because per ancient Near Eastern custom, The husband had the responsibility to make sure that the slave woman who conceived was kept in check. But what does he do? He does the passive thing. (coughs) He doesn't do anything. Look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in prayer, or in your power. Do to her as you please. So Abram says... I'm not going to do anything, but if you want to do something, you are free to do it. But there's another problem. There's another issue. Although Hagar conceives a child, Abram never recognizes her as his wife. Although it's clear in the text that Moses identifies Hagar as Abram's wife, Look at the text. Notice, how do Abram and Sarai address Hagar? They only address her as servants. The servants. The handmaiden. They don't even acknowledge her name. They just see her as an instrument to accomplish their plans. Now, the the trouble climaxes when Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar causes her to flee. Look at verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, oh, excuse me, at the end of verse 6, then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. It's an issue, right? And there is a word here, specifically the word dealt harshly, that is important because that same word is used to describe the Egyptians afflicting the Israelites in the book of Exodus. So it's ironic don't you think? A Hebrew master afflicts an Egyptian slave, and the slave flees. Now, Abram's house is in complete chaos. Hagar loses a home. Sarai loses a servant. Abram loses a child. It's troublesome. It's chaos. Now, let's take a moment to reflect. Are Abram and Sarai meant to be exemplars of faith? I mean, they behave more like Canaanites than God's people. But don't we do the same things? Don't we take things into our own hands, thinking that we know best, that we operate according to worldly principles? Let me take control, God. Let me do what I think is right. And if we're honest, then we would admit that taking things into our own hands, if we look back in history even our own personal history, we'll see that it oftentimes led to trouble. I mean, doing our ways led to disaster. I mean, it produces more problems. Well, let me think about, let's think about those examples I referenced earlier. Dating a non-believer causes trouble internally and externally. I mean, it affects us and our relationships. Other believers choose to have that uncomfortable conversation with us because it is foolish according to the Bible, to date a non-believer, and it's an awkward conversation. It's troublesome. It prevents us from being able to serve in a leadership capacity. If we're leading a small group, then it requires us to step down, and possibly the group has to dissolve. If we're leading a Sunday school class, it requires other teachers to expend energy to cover for us. It might cause tension between us and our unbelieving parents, tension between us and our community. But it also causes trouble within us internally. We want to go to a Bible study, but our significant other would rather go watch a movie. We take them to church, but they find the service unhelpful. We feel like we're being pulled in two different paths, We enjoy the relationship with this person, but we can't seem to enjoy our relationship with the Lord, and it causes tension. It causes trouble. Think about motivating people through false guilt. Now, okay, all cards on the table, I confess that I've done this in the past, so hopefully I don't do this anymore, but if you catch me doing it, please do talk to me. I'm trying to improve in this area. Okay? So let's say you guilt trip a person to serve as a Bible study leader. Do you think that he would enjoy the experience? Do you think he would want to serve again? In fact, when they see you walking down the hallway at church, they'll probably turn the other direction because they don't want to see you. They don't want to talk to you. And they may even feel more burnt out. That motivating people to serve through false guilt leads to people wanting to serve less and perhaps even tension within a relationship. Let's talk about embellishing your resume. I mean, embellishing your resume could get you into trouble. Hiring managers run a background check. If you put down a school you didn't attend, they're going to know. And if you put down a skill that you think you are proficient in, an interviewer can test you on the spot. Here's the CAD program. Could you design for me a gyroscope on it? Or they may even conduct the whole interview in Spanish. And it'd be very embarrassing if you don't have the skill set as advertised and you'll still be out of work that our plans, taking things into our own hands, could lead to more trouble. So then this brings us to the final question. What are we supposed to do when we face trouble? What should we know in those moments? What should we recall? What is the truth that we have to have in our mind? And And it's this, that only God can redeem a troublesome situation because he alone sees our trouble. We may feel like God has turned a blind eye, but he hasn't. He still has his eyes on you. He knows your difficult situation, and only God can help. Only God can redeem a troublesome situation because only he is able to save us out of it, and he sees our trouble. And we see this in the text as well, that God redeems this troublesome situation with Abram's household because he sees Hagar's trouble. He sees Hagar's situation. And he sees this trouble and decides to intervene. And it's this intervention that resolves the issue with Abram and Sarai. So let's look at verse 7. We have the introduction to this section. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. Now, this is the first time in the Bible where we have the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord serves as a representative for God. Uh, A present-day example or analogy would be the U.S. press secretary. When she speaks, she speaks on behalf of the White House. When they address the press secretary, they address the White House. Now, the angel of the Lord stands in for God in this particular moment. Now, note the word found in verse 7. The word found when it's used between God and a person in the Bible often denotes election, that God chose, chooses Hagar. Now, also think about where did he stop her? Where was the appearance of the angel of the Lord? it occurs, according to this verse, in this place called Shur. Now why does God choose this place for a time of intervention? It's because Shur serves as a boundary between Canaan and Egypt. Then once you cross over that boundary, you are now in the land of Egypt, and you have left the promised land. And so God stops her right before the exit. And so now let's turn our attention to the dialogue. Because the dialogue is very person, important. Because in this dialogue, we see that God acknowledges Hagar, especially when he calls her by name. Verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. This is the first character in this story that actually uses Hagar's name. Hagar is someone that God recognizes, someone that God acknowledges. And God also acknowledges her status. She is a servant of Sarai. And even Hagar acknowledges that that as well. I mean, she says, Sarai is my mistress. Now, not only does God acknowledge Hagar, But we see something interesting in the dialogue because now God also includes her descendants in the Abrahamic promise. This is how he redeems this troublesome situation. The way that he resolves it is by including her descendants into the Abrahamic promise. Look at verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. I mean, sounds familiar, doesn't it? She receives the same promise given to Abram, and her children will be included in the promise of blessing. So let's continue in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and, you sh- and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The angel informs Hagar the gender of the child. It is going to be a boy. And this boy will resemble a wild donkey. And a wild donkey is often known for doing its own thing, individualistic. And he will also be in conflict with his neighbors. And he and the future descendants of Abram will not dwell together. Now, this description doesn't sound like a child of promise. But it does tell us that Ishmael is a child of Abram. And he partakes in the promise. Now, after this disclosure about Hagar having a son and the son being named Ishmael, Hagar acknowledges that God sees her. Look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and bread. Now, note the words see. God of seeing, Him who looks after me. That even the name of the place, 'er Bier Lahai Roy, has the word sight in it. If you look in your Bibles, in verse 14, you'll see a footnote. And the footnote will tell you 'er Bier Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. God sees her trouble. And God also intends to send her back. Look at the instruction in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, when I read this, I was like, man, this sounds really cruel. She just left this abusive master, and God, you're going to send her back to this woman? And as I thought about it more, I thought about this. The reason why the Lord sends Hagar back is because Hagar has a message. The message is in her womb. It's the boy Ishmael. Because what does the name Ishmael mean? If you look at the footnote, it says God hears. That God hears the affliction. And what else does verse 11 say? It says, You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. That God sees the affliction of Abram and Sarai just as he saw the affliction of Hagar. He's not distant. He's not far. In fact, he's the one who sees and hears their trouble. But the question is, if God is the one who hears, will they cry out? Will they ask him for help? Will they look to him for guidance? Because Ishmael is a reminder to Abram's family that he sees and hears their trouble. Note the emphasis on Hagar and Abram in the last verses, beginning in verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, if you look at those two verses, you look very closely. There is a character in these verses that are missing. Sarai is not in these verses. And it's as though Sarai, according to this narrator, according to Moses, she has to watch Hagar give birth to this son. And instead of attempting to take things into her own hands, she has to watch this child and learn that she needs to pray and trust God. So what is the lesson for us? That if we know that only God can redeem a troublesome situation because He sees our trouble, He knows our circumstances, then we only have one thing that we can do, and it's to pray. That we pray to God for help because He sees our trouble. That we pray to God when we feel discontent in our singleness. And we ask him to give us contentment in this season and trusting that he will provide. We pray to God to help us let go of things when there's not enough help in ministry. We trust him that if he's not able to provide someone to lead this Bible study, then maybe it's time for this ministry to cease. And that it's better to allow a ministry to stop for a season than motivate a person via false guilt to serve and maybe somebody will pick up the Bible study later. That we pray for God to help us not embellish our resumes, but to be honest, because after all, God knows the job that we need that fits our gifts and our temperaments, and we ask Him to help us to be honest, but to continue to trust Him. So what do we see in this text? We see that belief That God doesn't care about us, that God doesn't see our troubles, oftentimes causes us to take things into our own hands. But what happens when we take things into our own hands? It oftentimes leads to more trouble than we expect. And so what should we do in those troublesome situations? We have to remember that only God can redeem them. And the only thing that we can do is pray. Let me close with this quote from a pastor. He says this, Faith is only as good as its object. If we trust people, we get what people can do. If we trust money, we get what money can do. If we trust ourselves, we get what we can do. But if we trust God, we get what God can do. So when trouble arises, let's trust God rather than take things into our own hands May we continue to live according to his ways, because after all, he sees our trouble and hears our prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this timely reminder in your word that oftentimes when we face trouble or challenging situations, it's easy for us to want to take things into our own hands, to do what we think is right. But we pray that your spirit would give us a peace that surpasses all understanding to know and to trust in You, to do as You would instruct, knowing that You will help us and that You will deliver us in Your timing. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.